Well, let's get right into God's Word. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. We've been talking about spirit, soul, and body. It's been a few weeks now because we were away and Pastor Michael ministered the first Wednesday and Pastor Joseph last Wednesday. And so we're going to get back into this study, review a few minutes so that we can all be on the same page, not just literally, but also in terms of understanding what we're talking about. The basis of this study is in Galatians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where Paul says, sanctify your whole your, your holy spirit, soul, and body. We've talked about the fact that it's important to understand the, how God has made you. There are three different parts to you. And there are people that teach there are only two, but they're wrong. <laughs> uh, but I, I really believe that they are. But whether they are or not is not important. I really believe that the Bible tells us, and it makes very much sense that there are three parts to you. First of all, we're patterned after God. There are three parts to Him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've studied the different roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we've seen that the three parts of you, spirit, soul, and body, have similar roles to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, similar authority, similar position inside of you. We've seen that the that the, the three parts of you come from two different realms of existence. There's the spirit realm. That's the realm that God exists in. And that's not some spooky, ethereal realm. That's actually more real than this other realm, which is the material realm. The spirit realm is eternal. It's the realm where God lives in, and there are other beings that live with Him. There are spirits, there, and, and the ones that live with Him are angels, angelic beings, the Bible very clearly talks about them. Jesus talks about them. The book of Revelation describes them. They're in Isaiah. talked about some of them very briefly on Sunday morning. So the Bible is, angels are very real. But then there are a group of angels called fallen angels, which become demons, and that's about one-third of the angels, and they're also of the spirit realm. So the, that's basically what the spirit realm is. It's eternal. It's not changing. It's not growing older. It, it, and, 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 and that part of you that's part of that realm is your spirit being, your essence, your nature, what you're really made of, who you really are. And then the one-third of you is your body, and that's the part that we're the most familiar with, that part of you comes from the natural material realm. The Bible says that your body came out of dust and it will return to dust. The dust referring to the natural material realm of this earth. We describe the natural material realm as anything that your five, that's real exists and that your five senses can detect it. So if you can see it, smell it, taste it, hear it, or touch it, then it is of this natural material realm. And since your body qualifies on all five of those, your body is this natural material realm. And then we talked about the fact that these two realms of existence cannot naturally make contact with each other. This room is full of angels right now. The Bible says each one of us has at least one angel, a guardian angel, and that, so there's at least one angel for each one of us here, and so in the process of your coming in, you may have bumped into your neighbor's angel and not known it because you can't physically detect that angel, neither can that angel physically detect you because we're of two different realms of existence. Now, there's the problem. The problem is if I, if I am a spirit from the spirit realm, and my spirit lives in a body that's of this natural realm, how are they going to communicate with each other when by nature they can't? Well, God solved that by giving a third part to you known as your soul that's made of your mind, your will, and your emotions. And it's a bridge between your physical body and your spirit being. And it's the means by which they communicate with each other. Then we went on to talk about when God, when, when God made man to begin with, that spirit man was perfect, and the spirit was in dominion in his, within him. And then when Satan came in Genesis 3 to, to, to bring destruction to God's creation, what he chose to do was to come and tempt the woman to get into her mind, to reason with him. And by doing that, he was tempting her to elevate her reason above her spirit. Because what God said is, do not eat of that tree. He gave them a commandment. See, the thing about a commandment, there's only two choices with it. You either obey it or you disobey it. You don't need to understand it. You don't need to know why. You don't need to know how. All you need to know is what it says. Am I clear on what it says? If I am, I either do it or I don't. It's that simple. And all God required of them was obedience. He didn't require them to understand it. He didn't require them to defend what he said. He just said, don't eat of that tree. By the way, he said, you can eat of everything else, but just don't eat of that tree. And of course, the very temptation was to come and disobey him, but the method he used was to tempt her to elevate her mind over her spirit, and when she did, her flesh took control. Because your mind is not designed to rule you. 
Your mind is designed by God to serve either your spirit or your flesh. It was designed to serve your spirit to learn to carry out the instructions that God gives you by His Spirit to your spirit. So we saw that what happened is when, when she sinned, especially when her husband sinned, because the Bible says she was deceived, her husband was not deceived, he disobeyed. Now her disobedience, I mean, her, in her deception, she disobeyed, but what God held Adam accountable for was violating a known command. In Romans chapter 5, it talks about a sin that's in the likeness of Adam's sin. That doesn't mean eating an apple or eating a fruit. What Adam's sin was is he disobeyed a commandment that he clearly understood. She was deceived. He willingly chose to do what his wife said over what God said. Did I hear an amen, gentlemen? <laughs> but that means that you're obeying what God said. That's the, that's the catch in that. And so, so, it doesn't mean God can't speak to you through your wife. I'm not saying that. I don't want to get into that issue. And so what we saw then is that when, when, when Jesus came, that He bought back or redeemed us back to where the first... He's called the second Adam. He obeyed God's commandment where the first Adam disobeyed it. And it's all in, Adam, in, in Romans chapter 5. And by doing so, He bought back the right for us to be in the position that Adam was before he sinned. So he bought back the position of our spirit man being capable now of being in the ascendancy and in the rule over us. But what he didn't do is give us a new body. What he didn't do is give us a new soul. He took the new creation, the new spirit. We looked last time in Ezekiel and we saw that God said, I will take out your old heart and I will give you a brand new heart that's of me, out of me. And not only that, I'll take my own spirit and put him inside of you on top of that. But your new spirit, born of God, a child of God, and God's spirit still live in that stinking old body that you've walked around in when you weren't saved, that still wants to do what it used to want to do before you came to Christ. And your mind wasn't changed. And that's why we saw in Romans chapter 12, first of all, in chapter one, verse 1, Paul says, present your body as a living sacrifice. You now have the authority over your flesh. You now have the authority over your flesh. Whether you choose to exercise that authority is up to you. But you've been given the authority and the power over your flesh because the power that your flesh had over your fallen spirit was the sin. But your nature's been changed. Your new nature does not have sin in its nature. Does that mean you can't commit it? Oh no, all of you know you can. But it's not inherent in your nature anymore. So when you sin, you're sinning against your nature. It's not your nature to sin. You're capable of it. But the only part of you that wants to sin is your flesh. That's the only challenge, the only avenue Satan has to tempt you is through your flesh. There's no temptation in heaven. They're not up there, you know, praying night and day so that they won't enter into temptation. There's no temptation in heaven because in heaven you're not walking around with this old flesh. It's left here. You get a new body. And so you've been given that authority and that ascendancy. And really one of the purposes for this study is so that you can see that because there are many of us that are still in bondage to sin when we don't have to be. And as much fun as it may seem for a while, bondage is never fun. And God's delivered you from that bondage, but you need to learn to walk in it. So Romans 12 verse 1 says, Therefore present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable, and then holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Then it goes on in verse 2 and says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We saw that what that's talking about, that word transformed, is to allow the real nature that's now on the inside of you to begin to come to the outside, and it has to come to the outside through your soul and through your flesh. So it's demonstrated in your flesh. So the change that's been brought about in you doesn't affect anybody else until it begins to come out of you. And that's what God's will is. And we spend time studying that. Now over in Galatians, we begin to see, we began to see last time, this battle. Now it's interesting because what's going on in Galatians before chapter 5 is the Apostle Paul is talked about again as he does in Galatians, again as he does in all of the book of Romans or most of the book of Romans, and again as he, if he is the writer of Hebrews or whoever the writer of Hebrews does, does in most of Hebrews. So there's at least two and a half books that are written to this position that the New Testament wants to establish with us that we are saved by the grace of God that's received by faith in what Christ has done and not by in reliance on anything good that we do. Are we to do good things? Yes. But that's not what determines your standing before God in order to get into the kingdom of God. It does determine your rewards. The Bible in the New Testament is full of references to good works that we're to perform. But those good works are not what you rely upon in order to get into the kingdom of God. It's the way we act once we're in there because the Bible tells us we're to act like our Father who is in heaven. Now, having said all that, the book of Galatians, the first four chapters are all about the doctrine again of being saved by grace by faith in what God has said and not by anything that I do and the freedom that that brings to us. So we see in verse 1 of chapter 5 this basically this final statement. Stand fast therefore in the liberty why, by which Christ has made you free. Not as going to make you free when you get to heaven but there's a liberty, there's a freedom. The freedom is we're not bound by the rules of the law. We're not bound by being in that frustrating position of having to be perfect in order to be acceptable by God. We're not bound by that terrible frustration that in order to be pleasing to God, you have to be perfect, and yet we live in a body that's imperfect and is incapable of being perfect. That's bondage. Bondage is to be required to do something that it's impossible for you to do, and it's going to send you to hell. That's bondage. And we've been set free from that by what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Now Paul has to go and balance this out because he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. Do not become entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Then he goes on talks about don't go back under the law because if you do, you've now got to keep the whole law. You've put the bondage back on yourself. So he's talked about that freedom. Verse 13 begins to teach us about the responsibility that comes with this freedom. For you, brethren, have been called into liberty or freedom. Only do not use your liberty or freedom as an opportunity to the flesh. In other words, don't say, wow, I'm free. Now I can do what I want. There are people out there that teach this. They don't use those words. But they basically teach, now that we're saved, we've been made righteous in God's eyes. We can do whatever we want and God will forgive us. There's no judgment. There's nothing else going to happen because we're now righteous, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that's true, you are. But there's a responsibility that goes with that. And that responsibility he lays out here, do not use your liberty or freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, he's talking to Christians, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And here's what I want you to see. Here's what we're going to get to. How do we do this? How do we walk in this freedom? I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Without understanding this, our instinct is to try to control the lust of our flesh by determining harder and harder not to give in 
to the lusts of our flesh. It's called a diet. It's called a New Year's resolution. Most New Year's resolutions are formed out of guilt and condemnation, which is a lousy foundation to make a change in your life. It just doesn't work. I mean, have you ever tried one? They don't work. I mean, because they've got to depend on your own determination every day. And they'll last as long as your determination lasts until something else goes wrong or you get distracted. And then once you slip up, it's just all over with because the only thing supporting you to, to make that change is your own determination. And really all that is is a work of your flesh to try to overcome your flesh. And your flesh can't overcome your flesh. But the answer that God gives is the opposite of what seems would work. He said, I say therefore, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. In other words, you're going to starve them. We talked last time about, in, in, and I've never been through this, but I've read it. I remember back in high school, and I guess the principles are still the same. Somewhere in high school, we had this, we're taught this principle of what you do in a fire. And the basic idea is that in order for a fire to burn, and those of you who have been trained may know more, will know more about this than I do, you need some basic things. You need fuel to burn, you need heat, and you need oxygen. And the way you put a fire out is remove at least one of those. If you can remove the heat, if you can remove the oxygen, or you can remove the fuel, the fire will go out. So if a fire, one of the ways a fire goes out is it burns itself out. How? It burns up all the fuel. So when all the wood in the forest is gone, the fire is going to go out because there's nothing else left. To f you don't put a fire out in that sense by just putting it out. You remove something from it that it takes in order for it to burn. And the same is true of the lusts of our flesh. You don't put it out by controlling it. You put it out by taking the fuel away. So think about this. The more, the harder you try to control your lusts, the more you're thinking about it. And here's a principle that I teach in Renewing the Mind that really has helped me so much. The more you think about something, the bigger it gets in your mind, good or bad. The more you think about something, the bigger it gets in your mind. Ever have a mosquito bite somewhere you can't reach? I'll give you an example of that. Last night I woke up in the middle of the night and, and, uh, and it, was, it was pouring rain and there was a, a drip outside our window. That's been there before. I thought I had it fixed. And somewhere around 2 or 3 in the morning I hear this drip, drip. It wasn't loud. It wasn't loud enough to, you know, so that I couldn't have gone to sleep. But I began to think about the drip thinking, wait a minute, I just paid money to have this thing fixed and now it's dripping. And I'm starting to get a little irritated. And now I'm thinking, but I need to go to sleep. I need to let go of it. I need to go to... Because I'm not going to go to sleep if I get upset about this. So, I, you know, I turned on some, some teaching and stuck it in my ear. And that still wasn't working. And Anita has one of these machines that sounds like the ocean. So I went and turned that all, on, all the way up. And I get into bed and I can still hear... It's very faint, but I can still hear this thing. Which I've heard before. It never bothered me. I went right to sleep. But the problem is the more I think about it, the louder it's getting. So I literally had to get up and go sleep somewhere else until, the, until it stops raining and I go back to bed again because this stupid little drip was now like boing, 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 boing because the more I thought about it, the bigger it got in my mind. So now break, take this principle over to something that you're lusting after. Maybe it's food chocolate, a little piece of candy that talks to you. Eat me. You deserve me. You've had a rough day. I'm small. I won't do much harm. I don't have many calories. See, the issue isn't the calories. or The issue is control. The issue is control. I don't want to go off on this tangent. But there is a sin the Bible talks about, which you don't hear much about, and it's the sin of gluttony. 
I heard that one on vacation. <laughs> I turned it right off. <laughs> I don't want to hear it on vacation. Gluttony is not overeating. Gluttony is not having control of your appetite. There's skinny people that are gluttonous. The issue is control. The issue is, are you controlling your flesh or is your flesh, I knew this was going to be popular, or is your flesh controlling you? If your flesh is controlling you, you're in bondage. And the good news is God has made a way so that you do not have to be controlled by your flesh. And when you're in dominion and not your flesh, then you can enjoy the things that God has freely given us to eat. Because most of us know what that's like to look at something and say, I know I shouldn't eat it. You eat it anyway, and for a few moments you had the pleasure of putting that in your mouth, and now you're living with minutes and hours and maybe days of condemnation and beating yourself up, and that's the price you paid for the few moments of giving in to your flesh. And the reason this usually sounds like bad news is, first of all, because I don't think I can do it. It's too hard. But that's because we don't understand that God has already won the battle for you. You're just fighting the battle in the wrong arena and with the wrong weapons. So he says here, the way to do it is you walk in the Spirit. And when you walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These things are contrary to one another. In other words, there's a war going on inside of you. And the war is between your flesh and your spirit. If you're born again, your spirit wants to do what's right. Your spirit wants to obey God, wants to do the will of God. Your flesh wants to be in control and doesn't want to obey God. And that's where the battle is. So the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit is fighting against the flesh, and these things are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now go over with me to Romans chapter 7. That's Paul's discussion of what this battle's like. We're not now going to read Paul's own testimony of what he went through with this battle. Again here we see the same pattern. Paul has been teaching through chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 5 about the grace of God that the righteousness that God has given to us is not by our own efforts and not by our own works and not by our own good deeds. The righteousness what God has given to us is by having faith in Jesus paying for our failures and for our sins. By our putting our faith in something we didn't earn. And, that, and that's part of the challenge with it because it takes humility to accept a gift uh, that you didn't earn. Because if you earned it, it's not a gift. And part of the drive, and this is what's behind so much of religion, part of the drive of religion is I want to do it myself. I want to be able to take some credit that I can look back and say, I had at least contributed something to my redemption. And the very condition on which Christ saves you is the recognition that you cannot do it yourself at all, that you're totally dependent upon Him. That you've, it starts by facing the reality that on your own, you're a wretch, not popular today in the church, but we are. On our own, we're a mess. Going somewhere to, we're not going somewhere to happen. We're a mess going to hell. That's clearly what the Bible says. I don't, and that's what I've shared with you before. What was keeping me from the kingdom of God is I was a good sinner. I don't mean I sinned well. I was a good person in my eyes. And yet I, that's, but I was still, because I fell short of God's requirement, which is perfection. Never to have sinned, thought, word, or deed. Well, uh, nobody can do that. And that's exactly what the purpose of the law was, was to show us what we can do on our own. We cannot measure up. The very best person that's ever lived other than Jesus still fell short. And all you got to do is fall short once to fall short. So the purpose for us was for us to recognize that we, on our own, cannot save ourselves. And therefore, we need someone to do that for us, and that's to prepare us to receive Jesus because Jesus is God's answer to that. 
And so Paul, having taken us through this, now says we're saved by grace, not by our good works, not by how hard we try, not by our good deeds. And now chapter 6, he does the same thing he has to do in Galatians. He says, well, on the other hand, people are going to say, well, okay, therefore, let's just sin that God's grace may abound. If God's grace abounds when there's sin, then let's just go cut loose and have a good time and sin more and give God a greater chance to show the abundance of his grace. And Paul says, that's kind of foolish, isn't it? Because you see, what that says is that I was saved, but I, my heart never changed. Because that means you don't understand what salvation is. Because when you're saved, what you did, we use this expression while I gave my life to Christ without ever thinking what we're saying. We mean that as a euphemism for I got saved. I've been brought into God's club or God's kingdom or a euphemism for I don't have to go to hell. But the expression we use is I gave my life to Christ. When you bought your last car or a pair a suit or a shirt or something you gave that money to that dealer and you understood what you were doing at least i hope you do you knew you weren't going to get the car and the money back you parted with the money it was no longer yours that 20,000, 15,000, 12,000, 80,000 whatever it was you parted with is no longer yours it's now that dealer's and when you gave your life to Christ, you did the same thing. It's no longer your life. Virtually every issue that we have in our lives where we're frustrated, mad, hurt, angry, whatever you want to call it, comes from this issue. It's a part of us, part of me that's still sticking out. Part of me that I have not yet turned over to Him. Because whatever I've turned over to Him I'm dead to. And Romans 6 talks about that. It says if we're dead, that if we've, been, if, we've been, if we've been baptized into Christ, we've been baptized, that means joined or immersed into His death and into His burial, and therefore we will be into His resurrection. We've been joined to Him and identified with Him in His death and His burial. That means if He died, we died. Well, how come we're sitting here breathing? I'm not talking about this natural body. I'm talking about the old person with all my rights and my privileges and my this and my that and my this and my that. I was reading before, when I went home today and I was sitting on my back porch and I've been reading, uh, I, I enjoy C.S. Lewis and I've been reading the screw tape letters again. Very eye-opening to read them if you've ever read them. And I won't get into what they're about. But there's one of the letters where he talks about this issue. And he said, he said, uh, difficulties in our life are not what cause the trouble. It's when we perceive we've been injured by somebody or something. It's how it affects me. And the, the fact that it's hurting me means there's still a part of me that hasn't died yet because I think I still have rights. He said it's the great human illusion to think we have any rights at all. Where do we get them from? Did we make ourselves? Did we create ourselves? The only way, where do you get rights from? Where, where did your rights, do you have rights today? Do you feel like you've got, I wasn't treated rightly. Where did you get that right from? Where did it come from? You ever ask yourself that question? Who gave it to you? Where does it come from? Why do you have rights? Did you make yourself? The one who made you has rights. There are only two who, are only gonna, can, who can ultimately own you, God and the devil. It's an illusion if you think you own yourself. It's an illusion if you think you own yourself. Why would we think we own ourselves? Do I have a title deed? Did I create myself? It's, not, it's, it's freeing to realize I don't own myself because the one that owns me is responsible for me. The reason life becomes a struggle to us is because we're not adequate to handle the challenges because we re think we're responsible for ourselves and that's because inherently we know that because we think we own ourselves. Let's I'm going to meddle some more. Let's bring it down to practicality. 
which is what he did in this, in this letter. Let's just talk about time. He starts this letter out by saying, we get up in the day with the illusion that I own 24 hours. They're mine. And that I have the right to spend them the way I choose. And so our attitude then is that, well, okay, I'll give, I'll give some of my time to God. I know He'll be grateful for that. It's a gift to Him of some of my time. Oh, yes, and He requires me to, to, to read my Bible, so I'll give some of my time to Him in reading my... I'll give some of my time. I'm giving it to Him. Listen carefully. I'm giving my time... Because so, I'm giving it, I'm being gracious. I'm giving my time to Him to spend time with Him in prayer. I'm giving my time to Him to read His Word. I'm giving my time. Because that's what I started out with, my 24 hours to spend or give the way I wanted to. And I go along and some inconvenience comes along. I'm talking to me as much as I'm talking to you. Some inconvenience comes along and I really sense God wants me to talk to this person who's annoying me right now. Because they're keeping me from doing what I want to do. What I need to do. God, don't you understand? I have a things I have to do today. It's my time that has to be spent this way. And yet God may have brought someone across your path and it's annoying you because it's taking up your time. And then the hope is that when we've graciously given others of our time, that we're going to have some of it left over at the end of the day that we can spend the way we wanted to all along. He said, here's where that problem comes from. And you've heard me use this as an example. This is my pen. People in the office know this is my pen. It's a fountain pen. My wife gave it to me uh, a number of years ago. And I just like fountain pens. And I really love this one, not only because it writes well, because she gave it to me. So I love to sign the checks with this. And I, you know, people in the office know this is my pen. And it is. Because she bought it, and then she gave it to me. It's my pen. But then we use the term... We have a cat. It's my cat. Well, it is in a sense. But then we use the same term, my, it's my wife. But I better not mean my wife the same I mean my pen. Because I own this pen. I don't own her. I didn't pay for her. I didn't create her. The reality is she is a gift from God to me. Now, it's appropriate to say my, but not in the sense of my pen, that it belongs to me. It's my in the sense that we have a sense of belonging to each, but I don't own her. And then we go to the next level, my God. My God can do all things according to His riches and glory. My God. That's fine as long as we mean mine in terms of covenant relationship. But as he points out, we tend to mean the same meaning from my pen to my God, which means is when I need something to sign, I reach for my pen, and my pen helps me carry out what I want it to do. And the problem is we bring that same mindset to God and we now need my God to do what I need Him to do. Very subtle, very powerful truth. That underlying attitude, unless God helps us to change it, we bring into everything we do with God and for God and it is the source of our frustrations because then we think we're entitled to certain things that God hasn't necessarily said He's given to us. Disappointment always comes from expecting something you didn't get. And the way you stop disappointment is either you lower your expectance or you raise what you're getting to the same level. Because if you always get what you expect, you'll never be disappointed. We talked Sunday about Job. 
This was not what I intended to get into tonight at all. We talked Sunday about Job. We talked about Job was a righteous man. Chapter 1 says he was a righteous man. God, I think it's chapter 2 or 3, when Satan comes to him and says, Behold, Job, my servant, who is righteous, who is right. So God even says he's good. But under the pressure we saw, we didn't spend the time to go through and read it, but if you do, you'll see Job expressed under pressure. And we, I'm certainly not going to judge him because I've never been under that kind of pressure, nor do I want to be under that kind of pressure to find out. But it's only under pressure... Do you find out what's really in your heart? Only under pressure. As some people may be able to go into the produce section of the grocery store and look at grapes and tell which ones have seeds and which ones don't, I can't unless I read the sign. The only way I know how to do is to take the grape and squeeze it. When you squeeze it, you find out what's inside. And when you get squeezed, that's when you find out what's inside. It's not when God finds out. He's known all along. It's when you find out. And when you find out, you have two choices. You can either deny it, pretend it's not there, or you can face it and say, God, thank you for showing me. He may not have brought the pressure on, but He's allowing you to discover things in you that you didn't know were in you because He's trying to set you free from them. That's what Job was going through. And what we saw Sunday, what came out of Job, was a sense of self-righteousness. He believed he was, not enti- he, he, was not, he was entitled to be treated better than he was being treated. In other words, he had an attitude towards God that he was somewhat on an equal level with God. Because his attitude that came out was, this isn't fair. If it was anybody else that did this to me, I would be able to have them serve with a summons, pull them into court, and have them give an account before a judge of why I was treated that way. And we talked Sunday about that attitude that's underneath that, to be able to say to God, to God, who made me, who supplies every breath and every beat of my heart, God, you've not treated me justly. That means God is subject to a standard. that I recognize that I have a right to hold Him to. The only standard that I have a right to hold God to is this one. And it's because it's His standard He gave us to do that with. So when God's made a promise to me, I have every right to hold this promise up to Him and say, God, you promised this to me. Of course, God has every right to pull it back at me and says, yeah, and son, did you see the two conditions? It's a two-way street. But it's the attitude that came out of Job, and we saw Sunday how God revealed Himself to Job by questions, and the questions basically were designed to put Job in His place. And our place is the place of peace. Our place is the place we were made for. When we get out of place, we get out of sorts, and we get out of peace. It's being in our... Our place with God is a good place. There are things we're trying to do we weren't made to do. And that's why we're frustrated. That's why we're worn out. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, referring to the yoke of an oxen. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is is light. That means if you're carrying around something that's heavy and is wearing you out, you're carrying around something He didn't give you. He didn't say my yoke is easy. He didn't say my yoke means you'll sit in your lazy boy, watch the Bruins on Wednesday night, and eat ice cream or candy or whatever you want. What He said is there's no burden to it. And the burden that there is is light. So anything that's wearing us out, frustrating us, is a sign that I'm, there's something wrong in me, in my attitude towards God, in my attitude of what I am and who I am, in my expect because something I'm expecting I'm not getting, or I'm getting something I'm not expecting. That doesn't mean everything that happens in your life is God's will because we have an adversary out there. But what it means is 
something that's happening to you is something that you're, that's not what you're expecting. Your expectation needs to be adjusted. You understand what I'm saying? All right, otherwise I'll just dwell on it a little bit more. You get more uncomfortable. <laughs> it's good news. It's good news. And here's an example of this. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is he's talked about, he said, you don't understand what salvation is. Salvation means you've given your life to Christ. You've died with Him. That means, therefore, you're dead to sin. You don't have to sin. Oh, I thought we all had to. No, read your Bible. You don't have to. That means you choose to. I knew that would excite you. Because it takes the excuse away. But I thought we all have to. You don't have to. Now, we're growing in the process of learning how not to. So hopefully you're a little further along today than you were 10 years ago. And it is a process of growing and maturing. But there ought to be progress. There ought to be some things that you used to have battles with that you've overcome. But let's look at what the Apostle Paul struggled with. So now he talks about what he was going through. Let's go to chapter 7, um, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of carnal, or of my body, sold into sin. We're talking about the spirit and the, and the flesh and the battle between them. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what will I do, I, what I will to do, that I do not practice. And what I hate to do, that's the very thing I turn around and do. I'm going to read that again. That's good. This is Paul writing, the Apostle Paul. For what I'm doing, I don't understand myself. For what I will to do, that's get control, I don't do. And what I will not to do, the very thing I hate, that's the thing I turn around and do. Can any of you relate to that? The more I determine not to do it, the more I do it. And the more I determine what I'm supposed to do, I don't do it at all. In fact, I've messed it up before I've got out of the parking lot. If then I do what I do not will to do, then I agree with the law that it's good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now you can't stop there. It wasn't me. The devil made me do it. For <laughs> the old Flip Wilson thing. It wasn't me. The devil made me buy that dress. The devil made me do it. No. He tempted you, and you chose to do it. All right. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So don't be surprised when your flesh wants to eat that piece of chocolate. Don't be surprised when your flesh wants to lash out and say those words you haven't said in years to that person that just cut you off. When your flesh wants to do something and you thought you had it under control, you thought that thing was a goner and dead and it's still, rise, it's still alive and breathing. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I don't find. <laughs> for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that's the very thing I practice. Now, if I do what I, do, do, I will not to do, then it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find this then, a law, that the evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. For I, if I, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. My spirit man, my real nature now wants to do what God's word says to do. But I see another law or principle at work in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. That's the dilemma he was finding and that's where many of us find ourselves. That's the battle that he's talking about in, 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 in Galatians chapter 5 in verse 16, 13 and 14 there that he's talking about, about the, the, for, the, for the flesh Wars against the spirit and the spirit, the lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That's the same battle. Now the answer he gave in Galatians was if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're going to see he gives the same answer here, but in an expanded form. 
Verse 24, 7, 24. Oh, wretched man. Ever feel this way? Oh, wretched man. I beat yourself up. I was not going to eat that thing and I went ahead and ate it. Ever determined you were going to fast? You determined you were going to fast and you didn't make it to lunch. And then you're beating yourself up the rest of the day. Oh, wretched. It's because you determined to do it by your own efforts. And some of you have a strong enough will, you can make yourself do some things that your flesh doesn't want to do for a while in certain areas. But in every one of us, there's an area where you're not strong enough in your flesh to overcome it. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Understand this, when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't write it in chapters and verses. So he didn't come to the end of chapter 7 and say, I got that part done. I'm going to take a break here now. And I got to go pray, and I got to find out what's the rest of what God wants to say, because I've really got to write chapter 8, because I got to sense it's a powerhouse. I got to sense chapter 8 is going to be the big one. So I got to really get the. No, this is one continuous discussion. So chapter 8 is the answer to the question that he raises in chapter 7, verse 24 Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Chapter 8 gives the answer. You want to know the answer? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the first thing to know, that even though you're in the middle of this battle, there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. So you're, just, you're winning this battle doesn't determine whether you're going to go to heaven or not. Now, if you... I don't want to get into that with some conditions on it. You can't just go do what you want forever because it will have an effect on your decision. For those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, some of your Bibles don't have that last phrase in there, because in some of the Greek manuscripts, it's not in there. For the law, and here's the principle, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, what the Spirit of God has done in me has set me free from the requirements of the law. I'm not under the law that led to sin and therefore death because the law relied upon my flesh to overcome it. But the, but the salvation through Christ relies on what the Spirit of God is doing in me and has done in me. He goes on to explain this. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The law was weak because it relied on the determination of your flesh to be good. God, listen to this, did, past tense, not will do, not someday when you get to heaven is going to do, God, what the law could not do because it required your flesh and your flesh is weak, what that couldn't do, God did. Let that sink in. What, what you couldn't do to make yourself right in God's eyes because it required your flesh, which had to be perfect, and it can't be. What you couldn't do, God did. God did. Past tense. Once and for all. And how did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now some people have taken that phrase and built a doctrine about it to say that Jesus never actually came in the flesh. That's not what that means. When it talks about the likeness of his flesh, some translations say the similitude. When it talks about the likeness of his flesh, it doesn't mean he didn't have flesh. It means that his flesh was a little different than yours. And here's the way of that difference. The first Adam, the first man that God made, lived in flesh. His flesh was capable 
of sin. We know that because he did sin. But it did not have a tendency towards sin. Once he sinned, it had that tendency. Once you cross a line in sin, and that's what happens with adultery or fornication. There's a line there. There's a covenant line. Once you cross that line once, it becomes far easier to cross it the next time. Once you cross a line of sin, the next time there's not as much restraint holding you back because you're now developing a bent towards that. Let me give you an example. No, we don't have much time. Let me give you an example that's analogous to this. And we can all relate to this. Suppose you bought a brand new car. You take that car out of the showroom and you, and you get out on the highway and, and let's, let's suppose it's a Chevrolet. And the, the, the General Motors who made the Chevrolet have certain specifications for how those wheels are to be aligned. The camber, the timber, and whatever the other alignments are. And if, there are, if it's made correctly, according to their specifications, you get it out on a straight, level highway, you, you can take your hands off the wheel, and essentially it'll track straight until either the road curves or begins to, there begins to be a, a, a tilt in the road or you hit a bump or something, in which case it will begin to gradually turn off that way. But it, in other words, you're, the wheel, the alignment of that car is made straight so that you can take, it's, it has no, it's not pulling towards sin. But you drive it on New England roads through a winter <laughs> and you hit a few curbs parking and you'll discover that the wheels are no longer in the same alignment that they were when you brought it off the showroom. So now you take your hands off the wheel and it wants to pull this way and it wants to pull this way. Now, same car, but it has a bent. You now have to fight to keep it straight on the road. Adam's flesh came out of the showroom with the master's specifications. Now, he chose to hit a pothole. When he did, he knocked the wheels out of alignment and now his flesh and everybody else's flesh after that was born with that bent towards sin. When Jesus came, he came, his flesh, and I don't have time to go into the details of this, his flesh was, came from Joseph's, his, his flesh came from Joseph's line. It did not have that same tendency to sin. In other words, his flesh was born in the same way that Adam's flesh was born with the manufacturer's specifications. So it didn't have the bent. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, he was tempted in all ways such as we are, 15, such as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted. He had the ability to sin, but he resisted it where Adam gave into it. That's what this phrase means. He came in the likeness of flesh. It was like ours, but the difference was he had a fresh start in terms of not sinning. And that, well, we're going to have to pick up here next time. We've run out of time.